I saw a headline in the news the other day, and uh, I'll admit sometimes as a preacher, I see a headline, and before I even click on it, I think, thank you. You know, like this one was made for a sermon, okay? So this headline, this is the headline. Let me read it to you. Harvard professor who studies dishonesty is accused of falsifying data. <clears throat> See what I mean? Yes, please. So the story goes, a business school professor at Harvard who had been there um, over a decade and who studies lying. Why we lie? Lying in the workplace, lying at home, unethical behavior. Turns out for over a decade, she has been falsifying data. They called it fake data. In her, in her articles that she's been posting. For over a decade, she has been doing this, right? Okay, <clears throat> one of the best parts of the article was her most, her most recent publication, just before she was discovered, this is the title of it. Case study, colon. What's the right career move after a public failure? <laughs> Irony? Now, if you were gonna write her a letter at the start of her career, at the start of her career, long before she's discovered, at the start of her career. I think your letter to her might look something like this. Let me know how you would fill in this blank. Since you are studying honesty, whatever you do, don't what? Lie. Don't lie. Whatever you do, don't lie. Because if you do, it's going to undermine your very purpose and calling in everything you're about. Now, there are other things she could do that probably don't bear any relationship to her central calling of studying honesty in her case. Like, whether she wears contacts or glasses doesn't have anything to bear on her, on her profession, her calling. Even something as important as whether she gets married and have kids probably doesn't have any connection to her work in honesty, but you and I all know if she does that one thing, lie, it's all gonna be ruined. Are you with me? And I guess I tell you that because it reminds us of, of what is a very important truth. That there are some things I do or don't do that are deeply connected to who I am. Or let me put it like this. What I do <laughs> that, was a, that was an amen from God is what I'm going to believe. He's like, "Preach, let me let him know." Uh, so anyways, OK. <laughs> Let's gather back together, church. Let me put it like this: What I do is proven, at least in part, by what I don't do. Who I am is proven, at least in part, by who I'm not. Does that make sense? There are some things that simply by not doing them prove who I am and what I do, what I'm about. Now, there are still things I must do, I must believe to be who I am, but in some ways, what I don't do is very important. And when you think about this spiritually, we might put it like this. There are things on which 
or about which gospel instruction is really gospel protection. Things you don't do in the name of Jesus protect what you do do in the name of Jesus. Okay. All right, last week we talked about this idea of spiritual triage was the metaphor I used for this. And that is the process of thinking through what are the most important things in my faith? What are the most important things? And over the last couple of weeks, what I've actually been doing is trying to touch on and build those things in your heart. So over the last few weeks, we've talked about justification by faith, salvation, both now and eternal heaven, uh, why we suffer and how we make sense of suffering, God's will and God's mission in the world. Some of those most important things. And you may remember to borrow language from the beginning of Acts 15, we, we, we asked a question last week, unless you blank, you will not be saved. And I would say, the answer to that is, unless you repent, believe, and are baptized, you will not be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. I do believe that with all my heart. But then the second and third questions we asked last week were a little, more, a little different, I would say. And, and that is, a Christian must blank, or a Christian is required to blank. So on one, we're thinking about our salvation and what is core. And then secondly, we're thinking about what am I required to do because of the salvation of Jesus Christ in my life? Okay. And so what we know going into it is that the instructions about what we don't do often are saying something about what we do do. Okay. So come with me here to Acts 15. What's at stake here is that the church is trying to bring in the Gentiles fully into the body of Christ. God has already made this happen by giving them his Holy Spirit. But the church leaders are trying to understand the practical dynamics of this. How do they hold this church together when it's full of not just Jews now, but also Jews and Gentiles, everybody else? So they have a long conversation about this. And they don't say, hey, nothing matters Nothing's important. There's nothing you must do or nothing you're required to do. But they also don't give a list of 600 things that they could have chosen from the Jewish law. They narrow it down, and what they choose is very important for us, I think. This is what they say. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentiles, Gentile believers, sorry, in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. What did they say? They said that they needed to follow the Jewish law in whole, including circumcision. So, so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and, and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing right here. It seemed good. Now, that word goes all the way back to Genesis. It means aligned with God's will. How do we know it was aligned with God's will? Well, it was good to the Holy Spirit and to us as we discerned it together. Right? This is what seemed good. It seemed good not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. There's that word. 
You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off. They went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered this letter and the people read it and they were glad. They were glad for its encouraging message. I want to start at the end. We're going to work our way back up. Notice, first of all, they don't receive this news and think, oh man, oh man, they're trying to steal all our fun. You know, there's that, that bit about not eating strangled animals. They don't think to themselves, if a chicken has been choked, I don't get nuggets anymore. Uh, they don't think that they, gotta have a, uh, they can't have a medium rare steak anymore. Oh, no, because it's got blood in it. They don't think on the topic of sexual immorality, that I can't do whatever I want with my body, with whoever I want to do it with. I can't do that anymore. Oh no, why is God trying to steal all my fun or all my self-expression from me? They don't do any of that. What does it say? They were glad and encouraged by this. And they realize what the letter says. This is good for us. This is gonna go well for us. These instructions about what we don't do. So what do they understand here? All right, remember what we said. Sometimes what we don't do is connected to what we do. Okay. So two things I think are at work here. The first of all, what's at stake? The first of all is a very important, on that list of spiritually important things for the body of Christ. First, what's going on here is a matter of unity, which is very important to the people of God. Let me give you a visual for this. In the church at the time, you have Jews and you have Gentiles. And Jews have very strict rules about what you eat or drink, about what you touch or don't touch, and about what you do with your body in that arena of sexuality. And if you break those rules, it makes you what they called unclean which a visual for this is if you become unclean, it's like getting benched in a basketball game. Like you go sit on the sidelines for a period of time. Everybody else gets to keep playing and you are out of the game for a period of time. So you are disconnected from your family, from your work, from your life, if you are determined to be unclean. Now, Jesus changes cleanliness once and for all, as we read in Hebrews. And the Jews who are coming to Jesus are beginning to understand that which is why they'll associate with the Gentiles in the first place. What's the problem? They still have Jewish friends and family who have not been converted to Jesus yet. So a good Jew who believes in what Jesus has done about cleanliness comes and hangs out, hugs, touches a Gentile who by his standards is unclean. What that means is that Jew cannot go back to his mom's house and eat dinner with her. He can't go back and share the gospel of Jesus with her. And so that's going to keep these good Jesus-believing Jews from associating with these good Jesus-believing Gentiles because they have families they still need to care about and share the good news of Jesus with. So what's at stake here is unity. That's what's, what's at stake, first of all. But everybody who studies this passage will tell you that's the surface-level thing and there's something much deeper. And what's much deeper, what's at stake at a much deeper level is what we would call idolatry. What's idolatry? Idolatry, very simply put, is worshiping something that's not God. What's worship? Giving my heart 
to something that's not God. And this is why we know that's what's really at stake here in this passage. Look, there are two clues. One is in the text itself, and then one is in the context that those Gentiles would have immediately picked up on. Look at this. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to what? Idols. That's, that's the interactive part. Okay. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to what? To idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So the first clue that this is really about what we worship and give our hearts to is in the text itself. You're to abstain from that stuff that's actually been given to other gods. And secondly, we know that all of those foods and the sexual immorality listed there are the things that were associated with were packaged deals with worship in pagan temples. Those were the things. You came and you get full on food and drink and you participate in sexual activities, sexual immorality. That's what's going on here in this passage. And so this really frames why these early church leaders say you have got to avoid these things. There's something big at stake about who you are and what you're called to above all else. What are you called to? To worship the right God. And so when you do some things, maybe not everything, but some things specifically, your heart follows your body and you end up worshiping something that is not God. And that's not okay. That's not okay. This is not the early church leaders um, saying no for no reason. How many of you, have, as a parent, have struggled with that? Like one of the things I've had to catch myself on is don't say no unless you have to. So that when you say no, they'll know there's a reason you're saying no. Uh, I grew up, my best friend growing up, um, Every Sunday, we went to church together. Every Sunday afternoon, we wanted to play together. Every Sunday afternoon. And probably half the time, his dad would say no. And it infuriated me. Because in my mind, there was no reason for him to say no. Now, as an adult, I realized he wanted to take a nap. And that was his reason. <laughs> and we were going to be loud. Do you understand what I'm talking about? It was Sunday afternoon. So he, he did have a reason. But he never explained his reason. It just seemed like an arbitrary no. Do you know what I'm talking about, parents? Okay, so when I say no, I want there to be a reason I'm saying no. And what I think is happening here is that these Gentile leaders, these, or these Jewish leaders, sorry, these parents of the early church are saying no for a good reason. They're saying, since your primary calling as the people of God is to worship him, whatever you do, don't worship something else. Don't do it. I got the honor of speaking at Camp Highland this summer and our theme passage, our, our theme was anchor, our theme passage was Psalm 40. And I have not been able to shake this since I, since I preached on it to those young people at camp. And let me just show you for a second what I showed them because I think it's worth hearing here. Look at Psalm 40 with me. I waited patiently for the Lord. Listen to what the Lord does for us as we wait for him. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Now many will see and fear the Lord and they'll put their trust in him. And I told the campers, if you'll go back one slide, 
I told him, look what God does to us or for us. He comes to us when we are in a pit, often of our own creation, a slimy pit that we cannot get out of. And he picks us out of that pit. So the first thing God does is he gets us safe. And then he places us on this rock on which we can stand. I told the campers, he gets us safe. He gets us standing. Go to that next slide then. But then look at this. What does he do? He gets us safe and he gets us standing and then he gets us singing. You see that? Isn't that something? God's desire is not just to make you okay. It's to redirect your worship towards him alone. That's his desire for you. And I reminded the campers, that doesn't mean that he gets you worshiping or he starts your worshiping. In fact, the language suggests you were already worshiping. He puts a new song in your mouth, which implies there was a what? Old song. You were already singing. That song was just directed towards the wrong thing, not God. So what is that old song of worship that humans are singing, that you and I are singing? what's the oldest idolatry? We might put it like that. Well, if you go back to the beginning, to the garden, where you have Adam and Eve who have been made to love and adore God alone. And they desire to be like God, to choose for themselves what is best, which is to say they take the self and God and they switch them. That's what happens. The oldest idolatry is worship of the self. Giving my heart to what I desire instead of what God wants for me. That's it. And so what does that have to do with the things we do with our bodies, what we eat and drink and our immorality? Well, Scripture bears something out again and again that your heart will follow your body. What you do with your body, your heart will follow. And before you know it, your heart will be somewhere other than with the Father. I mean, the word for sexual immorality here, do you know what the word is? The word is porneia. Porneia. Does that remind you of anything? Does it not remind you of a kind of addictive brokenness? that before we know it has our heart and we cannot shake. This is why Paul says the body is not irrelevant. What we do with our bodies is not irrelevant to what we do with our souls and our hearts. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, therefore in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. I wish somebody would have told me this growing up. Okay, there's a lot of stuff, probably doesn't matter anymore. But here are some things you really shouldn't do. And it's because before you know it, those things will have your heart. And God won't. Just like that. Is this any surprise to us? Let me just show you. This is what God has always wanted. Let let me remind you of these passages. Exodus 20, going all the way back to the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
guy comes up to Jesus, asks him what's the most important thing, and Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. When Paul talks about how a new Christian, how their life has been changed, listen to the language he uses. The Lord's message rang out in you. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And they themselves report the kind of reception you gave us. They tell of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul says the process by which we are saved, our repentance and belief and baptism is a process of turning from the worship of something that is not God to worshiping the right one. And then it involves your whole self. In fact, Paul says the biggest danger to those who have been saved by Jesus Christ is that those idols would grab hold of their hearts again. Look at this. Look at this. This is um, 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in every kind of revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as they did. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we live in a world that tells us what you do with your bodies doesn't matter. In fact, there are Christians who would say, What you do with your bodies is one of those things that no longer matters because of what matters most about Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating to me that the church does not believe that here. They believe what you do with your body really matters. Or let me put it like this to go back to the beginning. What you don't do with your body really matters because it affects what you do. Who you're not with your body is a reflection on who you are. Now, here's how I want to end. Um, there, if you're hearing this today, and I hope that you are, my thought would be that you're having one of two experiences. One is, oh, this is why I need to intercede for this brother or sister. This is what I need to share with them. This is why I cannot sit by while I see their hearts pulled away from the Lord by what they're doing with their bodies. Let And if that's you, I hope that you'll take this word and you'll go with that word, compelled and inspired by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. But others in this room are probably hearing this and thinking, man, he's right. And you're thinking back on your own life, whether that's something going on right now or something in the distant past, and you are recognizing that you are broken in this area of what we do with our bodies. Or that you carry brokenness from the distant past in this area. Maybe you're involved in something right now. Maybe it was a long time ago. And I'll be very honest, for most of us in this room, there is brokenness in the area of what we have done with our bodies. And to you, what I want to say is that although idolatry is something we must not do, that if you will come to Christ, If you will turn from that and come to Christ, his desire is to give you a whole new heart. His desire is to take that wayward heart and make it his all over again. Listen, listen to this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. You will be my people and I will be your God. The good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are things we don't do because of that good news. But the good news is when we have done them, if we will turn back to him, he'll receive us. He'll reclaim our heart. And that is good news for those in this room, myself included. Let me pray over us, God, would you take and seal our hearts today? Remind us, God, that there are important things we don't do because of, God, what you have called us to do. May our whole hearts be a living praise, sacrifice, and worship to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.